Hello and welcome to the Maximo Theater and Performance Podcast. This is our April preview where we discuss what we're looking forward to seeing beyond Broadway this month. Enjoy the show. April is an interesting month in the theater because even though we're like right in the swing of the spring season, it's also the deadline for the Tonys. Right. So for show, there's this like rush to get all the shows open on Broadway which I think distracts all the critics and the publicists and everyone. Yeah. So it's oddly sort of not a lot. I mean, there are still great shows and we have plenty to discuss, but I found it kind of more difficult to find shows this month to talk about than I did last month. Yeah. I don't know if you guys found the same. Well, it's also, I, you know, in terms of like the off-Broadway theaters and the way that seasons, like the fall and spring seasons are typically structured, like we're kind of nearing the tail end yes. of a lot of people's proper seasons. So it's like a lot of like sort of major theaters that we talk about a lot on this podcast, they're all entering like their last show or two of the year before sort of like a relatively quiet summer right. and then booming back in the fall. But right. I feel like like March, like late February, March is when every non-Broadway show is like opening and trying to vie for everyone's attention. Yes. Could I just say American theater seasons no longer make any sense. No. It's like semester systems for adults. Yes. And we don't operate on that semester system. And it should be normal beginning of the year, end yeah. of the year. I don't know why we have seasons that begin in the fall yeah. and then end like May, June-ish in this nebulous period yeah. where we don't know, as opposed to saying January, new plays, new year, all the way through summer. Summer, which used to be the dead month of theater, now it's chock full of stuff to do. Yeah. So just mm -hmm. continue it on through the summer, have your fall plays, and then end it with Christmas Carol as 90% Everybody of does do. Christmas Carol. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> Wouldn't that be amazing if one year every theater just did a version of yeah, Christmas Carol? December. Oh, that's my worst nightmare. Okay, let's talk about <laughs> April. Oh, wait. First introductions. Jack, who are you? Hi, I'm Jack Moore. I am the literary associate at the Public Theater, but I'm here in my personal capacity, and my views are my own. Oren. I'm Oren Squire, New York Theater Review. My reviews are always my own, as well as my opinions, because no one cares. <laughs> And I'm Lindsay. I press the record button at Maximu. So okay. beautifully. Jack, why don't you kick us off? Oh. What are you looking forward to seeing this month? Um, okay, I'm going to start off with a show that I have admired for a long time, both in the script and sort of early reading process. And that play is Kentucky by Leah Nanako Winkler. Um, for those who don't know uh, Leah's work, um, she sort of rose to a sort of, has sort of like a niche sort of influence uh, in the last couple months. Y'all remember that crazy dust up with the Mikado at yes. the Gilbert and Sullivan Players? Um, they were accused, if if you don't know, of uh, producing a production of the Gilbert and Sullivan um, operetta, the Mikado. Leo was one of uh, using Yellowface, um, and Leo was one of the sort of writers and theater people who took them to task and really deconstructed why this was a problem and why that theater company sort of defense of their initial decision um, was sort of uh, one of the things that is a problem with American theater right now. And so you can still find her writings on the subject uh, on her website and on HowlRound. They're beautiful, beautiful reads. Uh, but Leah, of course, is also a playwright. And I first got to know her um, when she, as she was a member of the Youngblood program at the Ensemble Studio Theater and saw, you know, all kinds of brunches and readings 
Queens, um, where uh, her work was featured. And Leah is, uh, she's one of the people of her generation who is, uh, is really facile with the tools of the avant-garde in a way that you sort of think of with like great theater makers of like the 60s and 70s and 80s in New York City, sort of like the PS122 kind of vibe. When you say the tools of the avant-garde, what do you mean? What I mean is that she plays heavily with style f- and form and expectation. She has a razor sharp uh, sense of satire mm. um, that I think is sort of when I first you know got to know her work was really alarmed and and excited by. I was just like, oh wow, she can really take. I, I read, uh, one of the first plays of her was a play called Death for Sydney Black, which was sort of like. <laughs> like David Lynch meets Mean Girls. It was like, <laughs> and it was this incredible takedown of, uh, you know, uh, sort of female body shaming and, uh, you know, other sort of misogynistic sort of microsystems within high school and then sort of on a, a, a larger American scale. Um, and uh, I was sort of blown away by that. So, and she, I've also seen her do little short plays that feel almost like tone poems. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, Leah's half Japanese, and a couple of those plays really dig into um, sort of uh, into Japanese motifs and stories a little bit. And this new play, uh, Kentucky, I only bring up sort of her pedigree and her talents to say that this is by far the most accessible and quote unquote straightforward play she's ever written. Um, it is uh, it's called Kentucky. And it is about uh, a biracial girl uh, whose mother is Japanese, whose father is a white American who is uh, born and raised in Kentucky and who now lives in New York City, and she has come home to watch her little sister get married. Uh, her little sister is now a um, is now a sort of a born-again Christian and is sort of it loves Jesus and loves her fiance, and that is what she is. And so the sister, at first, uh, the older sister comes home from New York City ostensibly to try to stop her sister from, you know, being a Jesus freak and from and from throwing her life away, so it's a it's a really really interesting story. And the, the, I want to focus in on one one key thing about this play that when I first saw a reading of it, I loved, which is that it handles the idea of religion, particularly in America, uh, in a in a, in an odd and beautiful way. I feel like most of the times when you see religion examined on stage in America, it's usually in the form of satire or a takedown of sort of like, you know, the Bible Belt and uh, and sort of, uh, uh, you know, and, and the absurdity of religion, let alone Christianity. But there is something that is like, there is something really subversive in a way that you do not expect in the way that this play handles religion, particularly as it handles fundamental Christianity. Um, and there's a sequence toward the end of the play that takes place at a wedding that the tone of which I've never seen anything like on stage, and I'm very, very excited by it. Um, so yes, uh, I'm I'm uh, terrifically uh, looking forward to Kentucky by Leah Nanika Winkler. This is going to be directed by Morgan Gould, and uh, and she's returning home. Uh, this is going to be going up at the Ensemble Studio Theater, a place that we love. We've talked about a lot on this podcast, and where she was in residence in the Youngblood uh, program. And uh, yeah, it's going to be running in April. It's also, I believe, it's a co-production with... Uh, P seventy. Uh, I'm sorry. Page seventy three productions and the Radio Drama Network. Um, page seventy three is a wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, program and, and theater here in New York City. Um, I don't know anything about the Radio Drama Network. Um, 
it starts performances at the end of the month, and if you buy your tickets soon, there are only twenty dollars. Yeah, get it. I'm yeah, so act quickly for sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm just. It, it's. It, I love moments like this when a writer that I've really admired um, for a number of years is sort of getting their sort of big splash in New York City. Um, so everyone gets to see um, all the things that I love about these writers. So this is going to be great, Kentucky. Wonderful. I love Leah, and I initially wanted to preview this, and me and Jack had a brawl, <laughs> and Jack won. I won. This I'm, time. I'm scrappy. I'm small, scrappy, but I'm scrappy. He gets on your legs, and then you, just, <laughs> you lose your base. So he, he won this time. But It's we'll really see. gravity in the end. It's really gravity. All right, Oren, what do you have? <laughs> I have Revolt. She said Revolt Again by Alice Birch. And it's at Soho Rep beginning this week, April 5th, running through May 15th. It's directed by Lillian Blaine Cruz, who is the hot young director on the scene who is just finishing Red Speedo. And then she's going into this play. And then right after that, she's going into War by Brandon Jacobs Jenkins. And I've been trying to work with her for a year, and she's just too busy. Mm-hmm. That I is a her. hell of a lineup. I know. You go from Lucas Nath to Alice Birch. Big in Britain to Brandon Jacobs Jenkins' War, which was at Yale Rep last year. Right. Uh, and I interviewed and talked to her last year about a completely different project. And she was at Hudson Repertory, so she was busy doing that. And then just going one project after the other. So she is hitting it, and she's doing it the right way with emerging new stories. Right. Different styles, different flavors, and different innovative theater companies like New York Theater Workshop, Hudson Valley, and now Soho Rep. So a little bit about uh, Revolt. She said Revolt again. This is more a play about language, gender supremacy, and how that plays into how we talk and speak to each other every day. And if you know anything about uh, the trajectory of human history and language in the last 50 years, I feel like someone in the 30s, something has uh, shifted irreversibly, I'm afraid, with the way we speak about things And I'm a firm believer in the way that we speak influences the way that we think, and the way that we think influences the way that we speak. And it seems like language in our culture has become a lot more, not only pornographic, but debasing, utilitarian, you know, ejaculation-based way of talking about things and about people and rape, using that verb for a variety of different things. Sure. Uh, And it's debased thought leads to debased language and vice versa. And I feel like Alice Birch in these overlapping scenes and that are more like arrangements of testimonials and triptych dives into, from a feminist perspective, what that means hmm. when you are objectified in language every day. And so it is that sort of gender supremacy and the politics of language blended together in these overlapping scenes. So it's not necessarily uh, a well-made play Mm-hmm. As opposed to a uh, play essay mm-hmm. that sure. hopefully will be funny. Um, she's really big over in London at Royal Court, and she has some of the agents I know at United Artists over there. And I'm really looking forward to this. And Soho Rep is just on a hot streak right now sure. with play after play, even if they're not that good. But I don't think they've had a bad play in the last few years. Not that I've seen. No. Even when they're not necessarily good they're always interesting but they've had not only interesting plays but actually very good plays yeah by young artists and i was looking on their website and some of the influences of this play are ann sexton uh carol churchill's far away 
uh, Titus Andronicus with the use of uh, the abuse of women and in language, the loss of language, literally with people getting their tongues cut off. Um, and Valerie Solanus's uh, Scum Manifesto mm. from the 60s. And so society, something against women, against men. Uh, she shot Andrew, Andy Warhol. But she had a whole manifesto against men and feminist power that sort of has become famous after she died. And so I'm really excited to see how this all blends together. Anne Sexton, Scum, Valerie Solanus, Carol Church was far away, and how this builds on this piece with a great director in a innovative theater. Yes, I'm very excited yes. for that one. So we have to go see it all together. Oh, okay. Talk about that. our language. <laughs> and talk about our language. And this was also a finalist for the Susan Smith Blackburn Prize. Oh, I should of course. bring that yeah. up. Cool, great. Okay, the play I want to talk about is Ghost Ring, Ghost Rings, that's plural, at New York Live Arts. This is a production from Half Straddle, which is the theater company that produces plays by Tina Satter. Um, Tina Satter, and I hope I am saying her name right, um, has been producing theater and music in New York for a few years, but she rose to some prominence back in 2013 with a show called House of Dance, which was set in a small town tap studio and it got this rave review in the times from Ben Brantley and then did a swing at Abrams and you could not get a ticket to it. And it's actually come back through town a couple of times and is now touring internationally. I think the last time I looked at their website, they were in Japan. Um, and this is her new production at New York Live Arts. It has a very short run at the end of April from the 22nd to the 24th and from the 26th through the 30th. And one of the reasons I'm very excited about the show is the people who are in it, which includes Max Mu favorite Aaron Markey um, and Kristen Sia and also Tina Sater herself and then Chris Giarmo. Um I understand it involves things like magical realism and feminism about music and friendship and family making. So I'm just very excited to see these performers in something that sounds fantastic at New York Live Arts. I love New York Live Arts. I don't see a ton there, which is crazy because it's right by my apartment. But every time oh, yeah. I do go see something there, it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, they have a focus on dance. And I think that this show includes a lot of movement and music. But... Um, it's really, they're really turning themselves into a sort of a multidisciplinary showcasing organization, which yeah. I think is great. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, next up, Jack. Okay, um, I'm going to talk about a series of things. Uh, if you are like me and you love attending works in progress, there's something really great happening on the Upper West Side right now. Uh, the Women's Project, which is a theater that we have talked about frequently on this podcast, they're currently in town uh, with uh, their production of Martina Mayoke's Ironbound, which is in co-production with the Rattlestick Theater, and which is performing at the Rattlestick Theater. But up in their new home uh, at the McGinn Cazale Theater on 79th Street and Broadway, uh, the Women's Project is doing something called the Pipeline Festival. Uh, for those who don't know, a Women's Project, one of the main things that they do is they have this sort of cohort, uh, this uh, residency program, uh, which is sort of like uh, it's a, a program for young playwrights, 
uh, directors and producers, all of whom are women. Women. It's a two-year program, and in the past, uh, they're sort of uh, these uh, fifteen women have uh, you know have their culminating project be this sort of big sort of almost pageant-like show um, that involves the talents of all 15 artists. Uh, but they're doing something different this year, and that's the Pipeline Festival. And basically what they did was uh, each of the playwrights, each of the five playwrights was teamed up with a director and a producer to produce, a in a very limited run, uh, a workshop of each of the five uh, playwrights' uh, plays. It's been going on um, for the past two weekends right now. Um, the first weekend uh, began per, uh, with four performances of Cygnus by Susan Stanton, directed by Danya Tamor. And then last night, I uh, just came from the closing of Veiled by Monet Hurst Mendoza, uh, directed by Sarah Crone. And the... The names that are – and then they, there's going – they're going to be – every weekend there's going to be a new workshop of a new play until May. So as you're hearing this recording, we're in the middle of the Pipeline Festival, but there's still a chance to see some great plays. And you're going to recognize some of these names um, coming up. For example, this weekend as we record um, is the workshop of a brand new play by Sarah Burgess, who of course is currently uh, with us at the Public Theater in her play Dry Powder. Um, but she has a new play called Kings, which is set sort of in the political world world of Washington, D.C. Sarah um, is from the suburbs of Washington, D.C. I'm from Washington, D.C. This makes me delighted. And that is going to be directed by Adrian Campbell-Holt um, and produced, I should mention the uh, the producers, of course, and uh, uh, produced by Pearl Hodewala. And uh, then following that, the weekend of April 14th is The Rug Dealer by Riti Sachdeva, directed by Lee Sunday Evans and produced by Rachel Sussman. And then the weekend following that, closing out April on April 21st, is an untitled play by Martina Mayoke, the playwright of Ironbound, and uh, that's going to be under the direction of Tamila Woodward, uh, Woodard excuse me, and produced by Rachel Carp Reedy. Um, so I've just rattled off a lot of names to you. Um, the reason it's important for me to do that is that particularly this group of uh, artists who are uh, in residence at the Women's Project are names you are going to be hearing for a long time to come. Some of these playwrights are already kind of like having their rise. Sarah Burgess, of course, in particular comes to mind, uh, as well as Martina Mayoke. But these are artists that, um, who, when you see exciting new plays in the years to come, these women's names are, are going to be in those playbills. And so this is really a great opportunity to, first of all, see them all work together, which is exciting, and two, to see them at the beginning of their careers working on something in progress, um, sort of something that is actively being worked on. It's a very thrilling experience. Um, and I've been to the past couple weekends. The rooms are great. The plays are really smart and really interesting. Um, I think that uh, it's very clear that something very special is happening this month uh, at the Women's Project. So I encourage you all to come up and join. Uh, tickets are pretty cheap uh, but again each of the shows I mentioned only has four performances so make sure you get on that because um, I think uh, Sarah Burgess might already be sold out but don't For quote me on that. For each show Jack you mentioned a writer a director and a producer mm -hmm. does the writer's project include people for each of those categories? Well, I'm sorry. What do you mean? Well, I just you mentioned a producer, and I just we yeah, don't... yeah. So the, just to say again, yeah. The, so the idea behind the Women's Project Lab um, uh -huh. is to they uh, when they. Uh, choose uh, artists to be in residence with them. They choose five 
playwrights, five directors, and five producers. Oh, that's so interesting. Which is actually kind of unheard of. I mean, most writers groups uh, or sort of like, you know, residency groups for emerging artists in New York City tend to focus on the playwright. Right. There's a couple of directing cohorts. Yep. And then, of course, like Soho Rep has the writer-director lab, yep. and Lincoln Center has the same thing. Mm-hmm. But Women's Project, I think, I, I, I'm not entirely sure about this, but it's, it's one of the only, if not the only, writers group that actually also features the work and development of producers. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, which is important because, you know, for all that we talk about um, the need to have more great plays by written by women and directed by women. We also, I think, need to broaden our focus on sort of the uh, uh, celebrating women in all sort of job descriptions of theater, producing being, of course, at the top. And I'm glad you actually brought that up because it reminded me, in addition to all of these shows, the Pipeline Festival of Women's Project is also having a number of like one-off events that are all about celebrating female artists um, on Saturday, April 9th, they're having something called the Bechtel Happy Bechtel Project Happy Hour, um, which is, sounds just, I just love that. Um, and then on April 16th, they're having, and I think this is tying into uh, what I was saying earlier, a roundtable discussion for lady designers, it's called. And that, to me, I'm going to go to that because, again, we talk a lot about we need more plays written by women. We also need more women designers, and we need to celebrate yeah, more female really designers. Um, you know, that's, I feel like some of the, um, some of the more specific Specific and technical arts in the theater get overlooked when we talk about parody yep. um, and when we talk about, I mean, anything and representation of artists of color, everything. So it's really, I'm glad that they're doing that. There's going to be an evening from four to six uh, where you can eat, drink, and be merry and uh, discuss the current state of the industry as it relates to uh, women designers. Um, so yeah, I mean, just a lot, if you if you are looking to celebrate um, particularly early career female artists in the theater, Women's Project is going bananas this month. Um, and I'm going to be there all the time and I hope you are too something really special is happening uptown I feel like I saw the first version of this combination of director writer and producers four or five years ago with we play for the gods at Cherry Lane yeah 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 it was yeah, a yeah. combination of the writers all writing this one piece set in the office is that true that was the beginning of writer director producer at Women's Project Theater but that was unusual because it was one play Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's and that's what they, they have to done. Do. Yeah. 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 When yeah. I first started working in the public, one of the first things I saw was uh, they did a thing at City Center where the conceit was that all the, all of the writers uh, sort of wrote this vignette-ish play that actually was celebrating City Center. I think they were having like an anniversary of some kind. Yeah, that I year. saw that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, right, right, right. And that was Deepika Guha and some other really great writers there in the group at that time. The architecture I mean, of becoming. Architecture of becoming, yeah, with some great things. Um, and also just, I mean, just in, in case you are doubting me and I need to prove you right, go on the Women's Project website, look at the lab, and just see the names of the alumni, the alumni, I should say, who have uh, come out of the Women's Project. They are names you will recognize and names uh, whose work you have enjoyed already. Cool. All right, Aaron, what's next? Oh, I got lost in the maze. Uh, (laughs) Women's Project producers... Hypnotized by Jack's enthusiasm. Hypnotized. He's colonizing the space with his male pick number. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, the play I'm addressing is Dear Evan Hansen, and it's at second stage right now, playing until May 22nd. The music and lyrics are by Benj Pasek and Justin Paul, who I met a month ago at a Dramatist Guild salon. Hmm. And it was after work, and they're like, hey, come up here, and I thought it would be a good networking event to uh, hawk my plays. Uh, and I went there, and I was pleasantly surprised. And this is a hyperactive duo that did the Christmas Story or Christmas Carol. No, Christmas Story that was nominated for a musical. Right. Tony a yeah, few yeah, years yeah. ago. 
and they worked on Smash, and they're a very young, amazing duo from Michigan, University of Michigan. So much buzz about this play. Tell us, is it warranted? I mean, you haven't seen it, but just I your general impression. <laughs> My general impression is that this will be a very smart, funny, quick play. The writing that evening that was presented were a collection of songs from their sort of canon, mm-hmm. which sounds weird to say for people who are like, you know, younger than some of my shirts. Uh, <laughs> but they have a cannon. They have a cannon. And it fires very often and it produces stuff like Dear Evan Hansen, which started at the arena stage in DC, which is the biosphere of musicals, as Jack has <laughs> told me. Yeah, if you've never been to the arena stage, there's this giant, beautiful glass dome that encases the whole thing. It makes you feel like you're a hydroponic weed plant mm-hmm. growing in someone's basement. Oh, you could grow some stuff in that theater. Oh, no I would question. love to try that out. <laughs> Weed is legal in D.C. Oh, God really? bless my hometown. And you don't need like a prescription. You just I mean, legal. I don't know what legal weed means in the United States, but you know, what whatever. does legal weed even mean anymore? Exactly. What is, what is that? But back is to Dear Evan Hansen. Yeah. Please, please, please. <laughs> or this musical. It's based off of a book by Steve Levinson, and it's pretty much. I'm not going to get into the synopsis because you can read it online, but it's about an outsider who becomes an insider through a lie. So it's about Evan Hansen, the lead titular character who feels invisible we've all been there it's high school what invisible in high school yes i know so he feels invisible in high school he writes a letter that is a lie the letter makes him popular and now everyone wants to know him and i know that sounds very pat because i'm just giving you the structure the blueprint of it but i know they're going to fill it with probably uh, brilliant songs and has some very strong actors in it from pitch perfect and from uh, book of mormon and other great musicals and it'll be filled with a lot of uh, amazing music as well as voices so that's what i'm looking forward to and i probably will see it this month if you guys want to go yeah, it's not that. super easy to get tickets to, I don't think. And second stage is a little spendy. They are doing a lottery for hmm. $30 tickets with, I believe, Today Ticks. But in order to, quote unquote, unlock it, you have to post it on social media. Unlock it like it's yes. a video game now. Yes. You need special codes. Okay. So anyway, that, that's <laughs> the kids like that. The kids days. love special codes <laughs> and unlocking stuff. Yeah. We'll give them something to unlock. Exactly. But I I'm, I met these guys in person, and they seem really nice and really sharp and smart. And I support any uh, group of artists that come out of an alternative venue, even though you know I finished at Juilliard. I love it. But I support artists that come from like University of Michigan or someplace that normally doesn't get a lot of attention. Yeah. Uh, and, and actually opening up the pipeline for that. I remember a few years sure. ago, what's a school in St. Louis where the people who wrote Untitled... Wash or, U? Wash U, maybe that's where they came from. I don't and, know where those folks came and from. And there was but. like a brief surge of like alumni from oh, this yeah. Midwestern school that was like, oh, this is nice, a different flavor, a different feel, sure. not just the same three or four schools. Well, there was no shortage of buzz on that show in D.C. I mean, people were just loving it there. So, I mean, there was even talk of a direct-to-Broadway transfer, and then Second Stage scooped it up, and I think people thought that was a very good home for it because Mm. it is not a splashy musical. It's, I think, a little bit smaller than that, but 
very well crafted is my understanding based on when does second stages broadway theater open up do you think it would transfer there i don't who knows who Who knows knows? yeah because they they recently purchased the helen hayes um and i think they're going to do a massive renovation yeah that's what i I think it's gonna be a while before we see anything that they do up there but uh yeah this feels like something that's in their wheelhouse i mean second stage is the theater that brought us among other things next to normal um originally before it went are you serious Oh my God, that, I love that musical. Yeah. Next so, like, movie. yeah, I mean, smart, you know, like sort of not splashy musicals, but smart, um, moving musicals uh, tend to come out of second stage. So, if you like that sort of thing, Dear Evan Hansen sounds about right. And it's directed by Michael Grief. Michael Greif, yeah, yeah. Grief. Grief. Yeah. Who, uh, who I mean, who's just a legend, directed, you know, Rent and. And a good friend of the yeah. public. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, a very good friend of the public, yeah, for sure. Okay, I'm going to talk about A Streetcar Named Desire, and before your eyeballs roll back into your head, (laughs) hear me out, because this is a production that started at the Young Vic in London, and it stars Gillian Anderson and Ben Foster as like massive sex bomb gods is apparently amazing yeah i could gaze into his eyes forever Corey johnson and vanessa kirby it's directed by benedict andrews who we know i think most recent i think his most recent new york production was the maids at city city center and kate blanchett um so this production just blew up in london at the young vic and then they announced it was coming over here to St. Anne's Warehouse, which I think is an amazing venue for something like this, as opposed to a Broadway theater with a celebrity on stage where you pay an exorbitant amount of money to sit in a proscenium. This is seated in the round. It is on a stage that rotates continuously. So your perspective is constantly shifting. Some Evo Van Hove shit. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just supposed to be wonderful. And um, when it when it uh, got announced and when tickets went on sale, I was in Utah and I was in a frenzy and I had multiple windows going and I was trying to buy tickets and everything was freezing and I ended up buying like way more tickets than I planned on buying oh can i buy some can i buy some i've already sold them actually (laughs) for face value i did not profit from them even one red cent um but it has been extended through june 4th and there i just checked because i didn't want to talk about something that was beyond sold out and no one would have a prayer of getting a ticket to there are tickets available they're not super cheap they start at 56 dollars um and i think they do go up from there but um i mean I, I don't think that is a ridiculous amount of money to spend on a production like this that sounds like it's really one of a, you know, fundamental production of a classic play. Mm. I'm very excited about it, and I don't usually get excited about Tennessee Williams productions, so... Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, Tennessee Williams plays uh, actually, and I would say Arthur Miller now, particularly this year, mm. are plays that have become this high water mark where it's like, if, if for actors, it's like if you if if you're an actor with a reputation, it's like, all right, we respect that, but let's let's see how you do with Williams and Miller kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And there's this feeling about it. I mean, Streetcar has been produced on Broadway alone so many times. I feel like in the last decade, well, it's also because the was... estate changed. But go ahead. Oh, yeah. no, go ahead with that. New York Times did an article about this, and it made sense because I remember uh, Tennessee Williams' plays used to be very reserved. Mm. And then about 10 years ago, the estate changed hands, and it's just been a free-for-all. They'll let you yeah. do 
uh, anything you want with it. You can readjust it. You can make an acid rock opera sort of version of it. <laughs> and in some ways, it's benefited Tennessee William because it's spread everywhere. And in some ways, when you spread everything everywhere, it's been at a disadvantage because yeah. it gets diluted. And if that's your first version of the glass menagerie and it's done with people coming out of a couch and popping up as you know figurines, you might think what the fuck is going on here right you're not getting an honest i guess interpretation according to the way the playwright would have seen it right and i feel like it's always good to see first how it should be done in quotations right and then seeing the variations of that yeah otherwise my funny valentine as a jazz song doesn't work unless you know the original song so that when Coltrane goes off on his riff yeah. into acid land of yeah. fantasy, you know right. what he's riffing off of. But if you just listen to Coltrane's My Funny Valentine, you're like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. So I feel like this has benefited Tennessee Williams and Arthur Miller. And these are the, the behind-the-scenes news that we don't pay attention to. Like, oh, how come Tennessee Williams is being done? Oh, his estate is just... Letting yeah. it go out Throwing there. Throwing the rights out there. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I think this is more in the vein of a definitive production, a traditional okay. production. I mean, I don't think it's classic in the sense that um, I understand it's a kind of an austere set and uh, somewhat more modern than maybe a super traditional version of sure. it. But I don't think it's a crazy... I don't think there are people popping out of yeah. couches. I've never seen a really um, out there production of Streetcar. I mean, obviously, there's been some, shall we say, more interpretive productions, obviously, of Glass Menagerie, the one yeah. that came to Broadway from from Boston. And, um, you know, uh, Kanahatan Roof has gotten some, some some tweaking here and there. But Streetcar Named Desire feels like is is handled with a little more reverence than the others, um, than the other sort of major canonical Tennessee Williams plays. I mean, I'm just like, look, the reviews that Gillian Anderson was getting on of London after the, the show charts. is like I did I actually I didn't believe them they were so good. Do you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. it was like it's impossible for a human being to be that beloved who is not the living lord. You know like it's not <laughs> it makes no sense to me. Um but so I I mean this also this was the record for the longest I've ever bought a ticket in advance. Oh really? The How day they went on sale I think in like August. Yeah. Uh, when they announced that this was happening. All on the website at the same time. Oh yeah. I've did not do it correctly. Yeah. Okay, anyway. Yeah. Jack, what do you have next? Last one. Uh, last one. Okay, so a couple months ago, I feel like it was a couple months ago, I talked about something that um, was at the time starting down at the Cherry Lane, which we mentioned before. This is the Cherry Lane Mentor Project. Mm -hmm. um, the, again, I'm about to talk about some more works in progress. Um, and basically, the Cherry Lane Mentor Project, they picked, uh, this year they picked three plays by early career writers um, and then teamed them up, obviously, with the director and designers, um, and then they also, it's called the Mentor Project because each playwright is given a mentor, quote-unquote, who is um, sort of guiding them through the process, who is a sort of more master-level uh, playwright. Uh, it began in February, God, this has been a while, uh, with Christopher Gabriel Nunez's uh, Surgeon uh, and Her Daughters, uh, which was mentored by Rajiv Joseph. Uh, the uh, show that just closed this weekend was The Convent of Pleasure by Sarah Unspanier. I love that play. Um, and that was uh, mentored by the great Sheila Callahan. And uh, closing out uh, the Mentor Project season is Pass Over by Antoinette Nwandu. Uh This is directed by Tia Alagic. I'm, I'm, I'm going to mess up 
up your name. I know I did. I'm sorry about that. Uh, and mentored by the great Katori Hall. Uh, this is a play, Passover is a play that I've been familiar with for a little while, and I wasn't initially going to talk about it just because I feel like I've talked about it before in this podcast, but this play had some really big news. Um, following this workshop, um, and a year from now, Passover is going to have its world premiere at the Steppenwolf uh, Theater Company in Chicago, which mm. is huge news yeah. for Antoinette. Um, so this is your chance to see um, this incredible young playwright um, sort of uh, before she blows up. Because um, she, she'll, after Steppenwolf, she will be back. There's something, it just, it, it has to. Uh, so Passover is, um, hits all of the buttons uh, for things I love in theater. It is this uh, waiting for Godot feeling play that is sort of riffs off of the book of Exodus from the Bible, but it is set in uh, a in an urban uh, African-American block um, somewhere in America. And it's primarily a two-hander, not unlike Waiting for Godot, uh, or Godot, I don't care anymore. Um, we could fight over that. And it is, it is a striking play that makes you sit back in your seat not lean forward sit back in your seat because it the energy that comes off of the stage uh, or off the page depending on how you're processing this play is absolutely electric um Antoinette is playing, uh, doing this sort of high wire act uh, with stereotype um, and expectation about uh, what a young black man is in a city in America. Um, there is a, a third character who shows up uh, who is a white drug dealer. Um, and the sort of overarching idea or theme of this play, the yearning of this play, is, you know, riffing off the book of Exodus, what in the 21st century is the equivalent of the promised land for uh, for the, for the black man in America. Um, so you know we're playing with some with some with some heavy shit in this play, but it is hilarious and form breaking and unlike anything I've ever seen, heard, or read. Antoinette's voice is really, really sp specific, and that's always to me the most exciting thing when I encounter a writer, a new writer that I really enjoy, is like someone who is utterly themselves when they write um so yeah this is running just for a couple of weeks um uh, at the cherry lane um and uh, it's your chance to see it before chicago does uh i really this is one of those places I, I cannot recommend this play highly enough um so yeah pass over by internet nuandu great all right oren at national black theater coming up is dominique morrissey's play blood at the root this started at penn state i believe four or five years ago in a production there, it went to Edinburgh Festival in 2014. I'm riffing from memory. Uh-oh. Uh, I'm completely doing this on the fly. Steve Broadnack. Without a net. The third is the director of it, and it's gotten a lot of great reviews when it was at Edinburgh mm -hmm. uh, and down in Penn State when initially it was formed. Now, it's about the Jenna Six, if we remember that. That was the six black teenagers who were charged with murder for merely having a schoolyard run-of-the-mill fight with white teenagers. And they were charged with murder and convicted. And it started a whole outrage, nationally and internationally, about the way black bodies are persecuted more severely than white people for everything, whether it's drug crimes, whether it's fighting, whether it's gun possession, and the inequalities in the law. Uh, I remember in 2007, someone approached me about working on a project similar to this, the Jenna 6, and I thought about it, and I told them, I could do this. I don't know how to defamiliarize myself from this situation. I don't want to write just a play about like 
white people are evil, black people are victims. Here we go. Uh, because then my eyes sort of dull over and I become very bored and I feel like the audience feels the same way. So Dominique Morrissey found an innovative technique of using hip hop song, poetry, dance mm. to break that up with the stories of the Jenna Six and how it applies to now with teenagers in America and in urban cities and how they're viewed as suspect. Right. or viewed as older than they are, viewed as more dangerous than they are. Uh, having a black body in America is like walking around with a weapon and always being presumed to be dangerous. And I feel like the Jenna Six Project uh, encapsulates that, and I feel like Blood at the Root will be another important step or another important brick in the wall of this discussion we need to have of race in America. And until we have an honest one, we still need to see these plays. And even after we have an honest one, which I don't think will happen in my lifetime, we still need to see these plays. So it's playing April twenty. Oh, sorry, April twentieth to May fifteenth, mm. uh, National Black Theater. You can get tickets. They're twenty dollars, and it's a great space. MBT is coming up. They're very visually beautiful theater. Yeah. As far as the way they use screens and the way they use the stage is always very innovative. And I love the play Carnival last year by yeah. Nicole Salter and the way you, they use the videos. Yeah, I, I want to just say a couple of things about that. First of all, National Black Theater is one of my favorite theater spaces in the city. It is beautiful. Um, and uh, for every show, for those who've never been there before, uh, prior to taking your seats in their theater, there's sort of this lobby uh, where there's always uh, an art installation, or it, it, they kind of turn it into a gallery. And usually the art that is presented there is something that is sort of relates to the subject matter of the player about to see, but from an angle. So it's not like, here's some dramaturgical research about the themes explored in the player about to see. It's actually, it's it's a little more artistic and a little more poetic, and it actually fills your brain with, um, with, with images that are not necessarily called upon in the play, but that actually inform my experience whenever I see a show there in a really beautiful way. And also, it's worth saying, you know, Dominique Morceau, of course, is someone we love on this podcast. Um, of course, her place, Gelton Crew, is coming back to the Atlantic um, later this year. Um, so if you need your Dominique Morceau fix um, before then, this is a great idea. Also, Dominique is increasingly becoming someone, I have to say, who, when there is a story or an idea that makes me mentally exhausted from how complicated and sad and futile it seems to be, I tend to want to turn to Dominique and hear what she has to say about it because she's going to guide me through and she's going to find a way to uh, make it not seem impossible to fathom. Um, and it's, you know, it's going to be sad and it's going to be a rough journey, but Dominique guiding me through it uh, – I, I, I tend to uh, I, I trust her now to do that, and it's a beautiful thing that she's developing a reputation for. Um, she's a prolific yeah. social media poster, mm -hmm. and I think most of those are open to the public. And when something does happen, she she turns there and expresses her thoughts and feelings and views. And you're right, Jack. I hadn't really thought about that, but um, I find myself frequently clicking onto her Facebook page via Twitter, which is where I follow her. Um, and reading what she has to say about things. And it's, of course, named after the song Strange Fruit, as well as the poem Strange Fruit about lynching in the South, and Blood at the Root is one of the uh, opening lines. So yeah. the second I saw that in the season, I was like, oh, I know what this is going to be about. This is going to be something heavy and something important and vital that I need to check out. 
So in a completely different vein of that, I want to talk about the Brooklyn Gypsies Ghetto Hors d'oeuvres at the Bushwick Star. And I'm just going to go ahead and admit straight up front that I'm being a huge poser by talking about this as though this is as though I am cool enough to attend this show. (laughs) But I think it sounds interesting and cool. And I think it's something that perhaps our listeners might be interested in checking out. So, uh, Brooklyn Gypsies is an artist collective in Brooklyn um, of theatrical, but also spoken word, rappers, music, um, artists who get together. And the real focus of their endeavor is to speak about Brooklyn and the town where they live and maybe are from or immigrated to um, and where they create their art. And so over the course of every year, they will have... um, theatrical productions and but they also do this series called ghetto hors d'oeuvres which tends to be a one or two night almost party slash performance um where they actually do serve hors d'oeuvres so in that sense i suppose i would fit in because i do enjoy a munchie with my theater Um, (laughs) but they are bring together rappers and poets and they perform and then there's conversation and food and a bar and also a DJ and a dance party afterwards. Um, the upcoming one is at Bushwick star. It's on April 29th and 30th and the title is colors. Um, I think it sounds super cool. I don't know if I'm cool enough to go, but I think it sounds great. Do you know any of the participating artists? Do they have a, they don't, I don't believe they've announced a lineup. Although uh-huh. if you go to the Brooklyn website, you can see some performances by from past iterations oh, of great. this. And um, they were quite intriguing. I enjoyed, I enjoyed them. All right. So that brings us to a close unless anyone has anything else they'd like to add. I'm seeing father this week at MTC and Pericles at theater for the new audience. On still Wednesday. Yeah. So, Oh, I'm going to Austin to the Fusebox Festival. I'm super excited about that. You're super cool. Oh, wow. That's awesome. You said you can't hang uh, with the cool guys. Yeah, no. I'm going to Austin. Um, <laughs> the, other, the other show that uh, is like a close second for when I bought tickets for it in advance is I'm seeing The Crucible, uh, which just got a crazy good review in the New York Times. The fascinating thing about the reviews of The Crucible is how good that review is and how bad some of the other ones are. Like, it's one of those shows where it's super divisive, which yeah. I think is awesome. I love a divisive show. I'm very excited. It's also, like, that's an Arthur Miller play that I'm very ambivalent about. Oh, really? Just, well, just because, like, it, it's, like, it, it is... um you know, it's, it, it is in a lot of ways a simple allegory. Mm-hmm. It's like a, it's like, it's like a little metaphor, you know, kind of thing. And that to me only can take it so far. I, what I say is like, there's a reason why that play is taught in middle schools, you know, kind of thing, but I'm ready to, um, have my uh, opinions about the play changed. Oh, that's interesting. I'm very ready because, you know, it's always one of those plays. It's like, you know, Oh my God, view from the bridge. Oh my God, death of a salesman. It's like, you know, yeah. And the crucible is, you know, it does its, it does its job, but I'm I'm ready to like. It's not on all my sons' level. No, those top three, that top two. No, man, not even close. But uh, but it's the one that everybody knows. Like that's the right. Thing. Well, I think it's because it's it's the first one I encountered because I right. was taught it in school. Yeah. The last version of that I saw at the KGB in that space, the Crane Theater. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and it was long, <laughs> and it was over. It was about three hours, and we left the theater, and I loved it, and my friends hated it and i was like that's the play it's long they're like couldn't they have shortened it 
did they have to? I was like, no, it's it's just a long play. It's just play. a long play. And they're like, I but I knew what was going to happen. I was like, well, yes, that's an allegory. You sort of know yeah. it's yeah. not going to end well. Three hours is a long time to spend yeah. at the crane. <laughs> yes, especially in, in those seats. In Jack's, yes, future website reviewing seats, the crane will not fare well. I love no. that no. theater. And, but one needn't be there longer than... 60 to 90 minutes before your seat breaks yeah or something creaks and you're like was that a mouse i i oh. have witnessed chairs break oh yeah. no i on multiple occasions and yeah. had the chair fall out from under me at that theater and been yeah. like well this chair will not be sitting in it's can the we... edsel of theater chairs can we start like a like a non-profit that's like friends of the crane theater and just like just to get them some seats man because i love that space but it's a great space uh anyway Okay, thanks, gang. Thanks. Danke schön. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Maximu Theater and Performance Podcast. You can find us all on Twitter. Maximu is at Maximu. Jack is at Jack in Brooklyn. Oren is at Oren Squire. And I'm at Lindsay Behrens. We'll see you next week. <laughs>